Hello and welcome to another episode of AdventureZoom.net. I'm Sean Claybo, your host, and with me today, your other co-host, Christian Wins. Hi, everyone. Hey, Christian. How are you doing? Uh, very well. Yeah. It's been a long week, but uh, yeah. excited about what's what's to come in the next uh, hour or so. Yeah. Did you do anything for Halloween? Uh, I did. So I joined a group for Trick and Treat, probably the second time in my life. <laughs> and uh, I, I didn't want to like it, but I had a fantastic time. So oh. uh, I'm, I'm hooked now. I'm hooked uh, now. Great. How about you? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, stayed, stayed around the house. Uh, I do uh, a fair amount of decoration with, you know, programmable lights and yard displays and things like that. So it's it's kind of fun. Uh, we didn't get a whole lot of trick-or-treaters this year, but it's it's typical we don't get a whole lot because we're kind of like on an on a dead-end street that's houses only one on one side of the street. So a lot of kids don't like to walk down the street just for, you know, a couple houses. So, but it's still fun. It's my favorite holiday because it's, it's so interactive. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. So that works for me. Let's bring out our guests. Let's welcome Dan Milicic. Did I get that close? <laughs> yeah. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I, I think this could be my second time here, but I'm not sure. It was a long, long time ago. It's a long running show. <laughs> yeah. We had uh, uh, Oren on on one of our early episodes and things like that. So we've had some episodes, you know, we're talking about Raven DB this week. So we have talked about that. So uh, why don't you uh, kind of give us a little bit of an introduction about yourself, who you are, what you do, and then we can move on to the, the topic from there. So I'm currently uh, leading a DevRel department at Raven DB. And this is, interesting position because it's kind of uh, heterogeneous. I'm doing coding, I'm maintaining community, I'm uh, creating demo examples, or as I like to call it, I'm still coding, but without deadlines, which is perfect for me. I like coding. I, I decided when I was something like 12 or 13 that I want to be a software developer, and it was back in the 80s. So uh, here I am, like many, many years after that, still coding and still enjoying it. That's that's actually fantastic, right? If if you still enjoy what you're doing after uh, all all that time, uh, I think especially in the last couple of years, I saw many many long time developers just you know move into other things for a variety of reasons, right? And I mean all of those may have been valid reasons, but I always admire it if someone still enjoys uh, enjoys doing what they do. Um, so uh, thanks for being on the show, um, and uh, given given your position. Uh, it might be that we are talking about uh, uh, RavenDB or even more general about NoSQL uh, today. And I mean, this SQL versus uh, NoSQL debate is probably as old as NoSQL is, right? Or NoSQL. Uh, so uh, I, I have a hunch what side you're on, but uh, maybe maybe if you'd give us some insights, what, uh, what made you pick what? Sure. Uh, so back at university uh, in in mid nineties, I was learning uh, relational databases, you know, and all these formalisms and third normal form. And then, uh, as and as a young person, that. yeah, definitely. So as a young person, you you exit university and you enter actual real life, and then you start discovering that things are not so quite uh, streamlined as as you learn in the classes. 
So the first time you join uh, eight or nine tables uh, or seven maybe to, to show something on the screen, you start realizing, okay, this is not all flowers and roses. This is, this is real life. And uh, well, when you look at it, uh, relational databases uh, were incepted in something like 1971, where Cod, Professor Cod, uh, came out with a paper, famous paper. Before that, you had something called navigational data model, and relational databases uh, were so revolutionary because this was the first time that data structures, your data structures in the database, were actually detached from underlying hardware. So you could say that this was first major abstraction of the data. And this is one of the reasons they were so successful. And it took, this is now interesting, 71 and first uh, relational database was out in 1979. It was Oracle. And of course, now you can see why it is important to be first in the area. And you know, even today, Oracle is a big name and they shifted to big governmental organizations and, you know, they're big guns. And then there was interesting story. Cod was working for IBM. And, you know, he comes up with a paper on relational databases. Oracle implemented and customers of IBM now starts craving and asking for, for a relational database. And after two years, IBM gives up. And I think in 1981, come, comes out with their own relational database. So they had the gold in their hands and they managed to, to slip it a bit. Uh, and then 80s, golden era of relational databases. We, and this period in time, if you, if you think about it, it, it was quite different from what we have now. Because uh, there were few developers, when you, when you think about it, uh, personal computers were still making their way in like 1983 or 1984. Spectrum, ZX Spectrum, Commodore 64, you know. And the... Uh, you as a developer, now you're building application and you have precisely defined audience. So you go to some, you're working in some organization and you know we have 250 employees. This will be my user base. And let's say we are growing 10% year after year. So I have precisely growth rate chartered and uh, life is good for me because things are much more predictable. I know what kind of data these 250 people will enter in the database, what will be the shape. Uh, I have a limited user base, so no need to prepare, you know, big scaling. Uh, still no startups in, in today's sense. So life was, uh, you could say, different, uh, significantly different in the 80s. And then in the 90s, you have internet emerging and Java. I, I, I'm so old, when I enrolled at the university, Java was not existing. This is interesting point. And you know, uh, when, when I enrolled, uh, it was it was kind of brand brand newish, right? So uh, we were all excited, but the curriculum that uh, kind of went along with 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 Java was uh, pretty pretty dated and wasn't using standard terms for standard OP concepts. So uh, that was uh, rather rather confusing. But yeah, I, I was an early adopter, and I still remember that. I think the the apps. Um, method, the math apps method was only introduced in Java 1.5. So I wrote code for my thesis and it required a, a pre-release version of Java to run. That was kind of my approach to avoid that someone tries to run my code. But that's a different story for a different podcast. So please, uh, please proceed. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. 
Yeah, I know what you're talking about, though. You know, my first <laughs> classes at university were with uh, Pascal, Fortran, COBOL, and just plain C. So that's what they taught me at university. Yeah, so Different I can time. relate to you there. But of course, now you can connect like Java applets and today WebAssembly, you know, WebAssembly, Java applets made right. You know, in the end, we will reach Java applets ideal, but through WebAssembly. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's 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 sad but true, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, okay. uh, with the, with the emergence of the internet, it's suddenly completely different story. Uh, lots of uh, parameters you cannot control anymore. Uh, things are not predictable. Uh, you you create a website or web application. Uh, you you get you go somewhere uh, uh, advertised. You become popular. All of a sudden, you have surge. Uh, we all remember all these stories of sites going down because uh, too many people uh, came to to visit, to look around, to shop. Even today, when you look at the Ticketmaster, I think it was a year ago, had a problem selling Taylor Swift tickets. And you, you could think, okay, this is 2022, for example. I bet these problems have been solved. But you, you see, these are inherently hard problems, but potentially infinite scaling of, of users coming to it. To your website. Uh, and in early 2000s, you have emergence of Google, Yahoo, Pinterest, all these companies. And uh, imagine Google, for example. Our goal is to index whole internet, which is exponentially growing. So simple possible question, which database we are going to store all these pages, our web crawlers are visiting. So those are unique challenges. And this was some kind of emergence of idea. Okay, let's create specialized solution for this unique challenges. And this is how NoSQL movement emerged. Now, with SQL, uh, you had standards, you had SQL as a language, you had uh, this theory standardization. Uh, with NoSQL, company after company, team after team, tried to solve specific problems. And this gave birth to a very heterogeneous ecosystem. So you have various kinds of NoSQL databases. It's, it's like a zoo, uh, and solutions are specialized. So, you, for example, you have uh, document NoSQL databases where you take an object or graph of your objects from the memory, you serialize them into JSON or some other format, store them in the database. Then you have, for example, solutions like Cassandra, which are uh, uh, not only scalable in the number of the rows, but also in the number of the columns. Then you have graph databases where uh, connections between the items are more important than the items themselves. But all of these solutions, and let's not forget the Redis, all these solutions are specialized and they are uh, giving good results if you apply them in specific scenarios. So going back to your question in which on which side I'm on, I'm actually, I'm uh, trying not to, as I call it, drive on autopilot. I try to look at every single project uh, separately to determine pragmatically what is the right thing to do, what problems I have. Do I have, uh, for example, full text search need? Uh, uh, am I working with business intelligence department where, where people are running something like Tableau and are uh, at home writing SQL scripts for, for aggregations? So I would say uh, NoSQL movement is 
kind of pragmatic, non-dogmatic movement, which is even for using relational databases when it makes sense. Excellent. Uh, I, I like the the pragmatic approach, right? So if uh, if you have this one size fits all, uh, 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 once I have a hammer, all the problems are nails, right? Uh, approach that that just that just doesn't doesn't cut it. Uh, still, you decided uh, to uh, work for and on uh, RavenDB. So um, uh, I mean, when when RavenDB was 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 in, in, invented or accepted, right? There were other no SQL databases already right so uh, what what was kind of the, the motivation to to build to build a new one so this is an interesting story which probably oran mentioned a bit but it was fascinating to me for, to follow because i was following oran and what he was doing and then i started using database and then i got very passionate and then i joined uh, the company and uh, it's always nice when you have this sense of ownership and when you can see that your acts and 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 what you're doing has effect. So actually, Oren started as open source contributor on an Hibernate project, and of mm -hmm. course, when you're working on a project like that, you you learn all the all the fine details of relational databases. You get a lot of knowledge, and of course, then what what would be more logical than engaging as a consultant? This is precisely what Oren did, and after some time, he he. And as he wrote on his blog, uh, it was the case he enters the company at 9 a.m. in the morning and by lunchtime, he already spotted a couple of entry patterns that developers are using there. And you know uh, what every good developer will do? Well, he tries to automate it. So his first uh, uh, step was to write some profilers which would automate, uh, uh, you know, recognition recognition of these anti-patterns that people are using. So that would be full table scans, queries without uh, indexes or select them plus one, which is most common when you're using some kind of ORM. And then, you know, you go from company and company and you see the same problems. Myself, I myself experienced after, I don't know, 10, 15 years of working with relational databases that I still have problems. I still have challenges. And it was always like my reasoning, okay, it's up to me. It's not up to technology. I need to sit down and read a couple more things and learn things, you know. But it turns out, even if you if you if you're an experienced developer, if you're knowledgeable, if you know about the indexes and uh, you know all these fine details, you will still run into problems. And this is precisely what Aaron noticed. And then, as a second step, okay, I have tool for automated detection of these problems. Now, how these problems could be prevented? And uh, he started looking at the Couchbase, sorry, CouchDB. And he liked it. He started playing with it. And then he decided, okay, let me throw up a, a toy project. Because, you know, every good developer has these ideas haunting him all the time. And you walk around, you know, you, you go into shower, you, you think, and it could be, Sometimes you're thinking for like six or nine or, or 12 months about something. I'm pretty much sure that was what Oren was expect, uh, experiencing. And he started, I think it was something like September 2009. He, he, he opened Repo uh, uh, and, and started working on it. And a couple of months later, uh, RavenDB was born. Actually, from, from the timing-wise, that's, that's pretty amazing, right? Because, I mean, 
then so it was born 2009 i think the first version came out 2010 if i'm not mistaken sure, um right. and i mean couchby at the time uh, was already uh, a few years old but i think version 1.0 of of couchby was also released in 2010 um i was at um, at the um at the the oscon conference in 2008 where and at least that's what they said back then. I, I still remember that uh, vividly, where they said this was kind of like the 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 unveiling, basically, of 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 CouchDB or one of the first, you know, public large scale conference presentations on on that matter in, in 2008, right? But 1.0 came out in 2010, I believe, even later than, or maybe at the same time at uh, RedDB's um, first version. So that, that's pretty amazing, right? So at at this one point in time, there were all of these kind of innovations and approaches uh, to 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 know SQL, right? Yeah, probably, because... probably it it goes like that. You know, uh, some kind of you know, it was is it was such time like lots of innovations, people thinking out of the box. Then you had, if I remember correctly, Ted Newbert with polyglot programming, like this mm -hmm. sense that you could have a team. Uh, uh, divide into like some kind of service-oriented architecture. Microservices back then were not yet hot thing, and then you could build different services in different languages and um, establish messaging, some kind of messaging between them, and this could work. And uh, for example, even today, if you if you work with AI, uh, most probably you will go with the Python because this is where you have most resources. So it's it's it was interesting time back then. Absolutely. And so you've come a long, long way since then. Um, what's what's the current version number of RavenDB? Uh, uh, it's 6.0 out on October 2nd. And okay. this is interesting. Uh, it contains a couple of features that took four to five years from the first idea to, uh, from inception as an idea to, to implementation. So for example, sharding, is is very interesting because sharding is uh, uh, empowering you to uh, eliminate this uh, you know roadblock along the way. You, let's say you're a big company, you you have large database, and it's now measured in terabytes, and you have corporations which which can extrapolate. At which point in time, maybe even month of a year, they will hit the the, the limits of their database. And okay. on top of that. I'm so sorry for interrupting you. So for those of you, of of our our listeners and viewers who are not familiar with the term, right? So maybe maybe we should quickly explain that. So sharding essentially is that if if you have data, uh, or even a data set, uh, you can uh, distribute it uh, to different even server database server instances or databases, Correct. right? Yeah. So the moment for sharding is the moment where your database or your data set is the bigger than the biggest disk, essentially. Mm -hmm. So let's say. Uh, Let's assume the biggest disk you can get is, I don't know, eight terabytes, and then your database is approaching that limit. What you what will you do? Sharding is the approach of splitting database into smaller pieces and then distributing these pieces across multiple machines. And that's okay, but the hard, really hard problem is how to make this internal implementation details so that People using this database do not observe any changes. So the, your decision to shard database into different pieces shouldn't re reflect on the queries you're writing. 
you shouldn't be writing three queries and sending each one to different shards. Database uh, sharding orchestrator or coordinator should do that. So you send a query. This query is distributed to all different shards. These shards compute results returned to the orchestrator. Orchestrator combines all of that together and uh, responds back to you. So the hard part is actually not this process I described. The hard part is actually making this completely invisible to the user. So the moment, let's say you, you crossed over, let's say 10 terabytes, and you decide to shard, you, you perform this over a couple of days, you switch the, the switch, and in ideal case, your code base will remain the same. That would be some kind of the holy grail of the sharding. So you're able to make this transition without you know, changing the code, because we all know as developers, when you mention refactoring or re-implementation of existing things to managers, they won't be so happy. From their perspective, this is already working. Don't, don't re-implement it. Don't refactor it. Let's implement something new, uh, which will bring us money. So then as a developer, you need to fight your battles and you need to combine it. In ideal case, you do something like 80% uh, of new uh, things. And then e each week you have, let's say, one day which you devote for cleaning up your code and, uh, you know, you have large list of your technical debt and you slowly go and and fix it before it is uh, it brings you in unfortunate position so is so, there a lot of is there a lot of decisions a lot of decisions that you have to make for for sharding it you know like with the relational database you can just basically add a disk and it'll just expand the data files onto the other disk and go continue on you don't really have to think about that much but is there more that you have to think about when you're sharding something? Well, uh, it goes from the database to the database. Uh, it could be, uh, so sharding uh, could be based on, uh, let's say, uh, hashing the primary key or identifier. It could be based on, you could also say in, in today's world with GDPR and all other regulations, you could also say, I want geographical sharding. So everyone who of my customers who is in Germany, Servers must be on German soil, on German territory. Uh, I will shard my customers based on the geographical location. Uh, the problem is, with most databases, you make the decisions once. At the moment, you shard data on different servers, and that's it. And it's kind of, uh, I wouldn't call it a gamble, but you, you're, you're making decisions, and you will feel the consequences later on. So if you picked up a wrong sharding strategy, you may end up, for example, with one single obese shard, which is taking like 85% of your data, you know, and uh, it, can be, it can be unpleasant. Uh, so what really matters here is, and why it took us, for example, five years uh, to, to, to come up with the final implementation is thinking how you can introduce sharding to the database that wasn't supporting server-side sharding up to that point, how to integrate it, and how to make this transition seamless so that, uh, you know, you have an application, you point it to the database which is sharded, and it just works. And this just works uh, moment uh, is essentially the hardest thing. And what is, you know, most strange part about this. You can spend years working on something to make it just work, 
you you deploy it and people say okay nice it works so is, i compared once a database with the window you know when you will notice window on your home or in, on your house when it's broken when it's dirty when there's something wrong with it so they, database is like a window if it's working properly you will not notice it and this is what you're expecting this is the normal state from the from the user's perspective this is piece of infrastructure and it works what when was the last time you were thinking about electricity it was either because it, it, it was missing or uh, it was too expensive so databases are now uh, becoming especially with postgres if you observe what's happening with postgres uh, databases are slowly transitioning into this kind of infrastructure and on top of this infrastructure you're building various things and this is good because you have a solid engine and then you're coming up with new things on top of it and uh, until recently i wasn't aware of foundation db i i don't know if if you're aware of it so this is very interesting first interesting thing this is database acquired by apple and then apple released it as an open source which is quite interesting taking taking quite unusual indeed yeah yes the second interesting thing is that team behind foundation db and uh, the name nomen is omen uh, as omen uh, you know they intended from the beginning founda- beginning foundation db to be the base kind of engine and then on top of it you you can build a relational non relational graph etc etc vector database these days but what is interesting what they did foundation db team spent a year or two building virtualized environment where they could produce deterministic environment for execution of the test code so it was like tdd to extreme they built a whole virtual environment where they could say okay 10% of the calls to the disk will fail or there will be uh, occasional uh, i don't know 5% of uh, tcp ip calls that will be slow or this percentage of the packages will be low and this provided way for them to to have the deterministic to write tests and and uh, achieve things and a similar thing is with the raven db i don't know how many thousand tests i think over 20000 tests uh, integration and unit tests uh, tests are present and you know uh, they are running every night so you have nightly builds and uh, they are running so if you shard an existing database is that an online process or is that done in the background, and then once it's done, you switch over? So uh, with RavenDB, when you are creating new database, you need to determine, you need to decide, do you want this newly created database to be non-sharded or sharded? Uh, let's imagine this process uh, of a company working with a non-sharded database for a couple of years. Uh, how you would do transition, you, well, simply speaking, you would create another one, which would be sharded. And then you would be establishing the Raven DB ETL, which would be on an ongoing basis in real time pumping data from non-sharded database to your future one. And when that this is done, you can switch your code pointing to a sharded one. Okay. I somehow remember, but I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, so feel free to correct me. I thought that there was sharding in 
an earlier version of um, of RaveDB before, but then was removed. So was that because there were you found out kind of limitations with the implementation, or you found those edge cases that made it really hard? So or, actually, this yeah. are, you you you're you're very correct. This was something like uh, up to version three point five. Mm-hmm. Let's say up to 2015, something like that, which is okay. ancient history now in a our long, profession. long time ago. Yeah. Uh, actually, this sharding was client-based, so ah. the client would determine to which. Okay, I, I'm sending document to be saved, and then I'm determining based on the on the various parameters to which shard I, I want this to go. Uh, you can do the same by altering the the. Uh, you, you can direct still. Now in version six, you can say, "Okay, I will I will create uh, uh, IDs which will direct document to specific shard." But you don't have to do it if you leave everything as it is, like convention over configuration principle. It will be working out of the box uh, since we are using hashing over primary keys or identities, as they are called in Raven. The, this will help unique distribution of the documents over the shard. So now version six uh, has has the sharding feature built in. You mentioned version three point five uh, from uh, eight years ago or so. Um, so which versions of RavenDB are are still under support? So what's the the support policy? Mm-hmm. So uh, from time to time we release LTS long term support mm-hmm. versions. One of them uh, was four point two. Now we have five point four. And ah, so you do policy. it for minor minor version numbers uh, that that so you assign usually, LTS. Yes. Okay, okay, okay. Usually, not, not like what .NET is doing. Like we just you know are just new new major version uh, each year justified or not, and then every second is it's, it's a bit comma okay. here. So the the, the thing yeah, is, yeah. you release major version like uh, I don't know five point zero, and then you stabilize it, and then you say ah, okay, okay, this is now stable enough for the long term support, and then. For example, 5.4 is now long-term support. When new LTS version comes out, 5.4 will have one more year of support. Okay. I was just checking that Oren was was on on episode uh, like episode 27 of, of Adventures in .NET. So that was May of 2022. What version would have been back then? And you know how much has changed? I think 5.3. But actually, the biggest technical change, so sharding is the feature we are offering now, but the biggest technical change after 13 years, uh, and probably people do not, not enough people know this, uh, internally under the hood, you have two data storages. One of them is the key value store. So when you're saving your documents, they will be stored in asset compliant manner, which is also a bit controversial with NoSQL databases. Still, to this day, lots of people think that NoSQL equals a, a missing asset compliance, which is not true, of course. Uh, there's no reason for, for uh, any database not to be asset compliant. This is the like cornerstone or re- of reliability. And you know, MongoDB, in the beginning, they decided to ditch uh, asset compliance. And, there yeah, and I think FoundationDB was kind of advertising that that asset compliance is like one of, one of the key assets, right? But... So and and the well, yeah. second the second major component is the indexing engine. So you mm-hmm. store something is going to the key value store. You run query it is going through the indexing engine. So what team did? They selected Lucene.net to be indexing engine. They forked it. They made it asset compliant again. 
So the, the, the Lucene.NET fork of RavenDB is also using key value store as the compliant one. And out of the box, you get a very powerful mature engine, very well written. You get full text search capabilities out of the box. And this is interesting when people are contemplating, shall we use this new piece of technology, new piece of infrastructure, actually. And it's always critical in, in any organization. I, I go and tell them, okay, try it on full text search stuff because Lucene.net is inside. It can support wildcard searches, spatial searches, spatial indexing, uh, custom analyzers, custom tokenizers, basically everything. You will see on this small, low-risk task, you will give it a test run and you will see how it's worth. And now... After 13 years, uh, we developed new indexing engine called Corex. I think that's the Raven in Latin. So now in version six, we yeah, have actually it is it is yeah. We have parallel existence of Lucene.net and Corex, and this will be I think up to the version seven. So what we did over the years, we tweaked, uh, changed, polished Lucene.net. We learned lots lots of lessons. And then we applied all of these lessons to build new indexing engine. So we actually managed to solve some uh, challenges or shortcomings Lucene has. So for example, Lucene is primarily full text search indexing engine and in its nature is to process individual documents. With the database, when you think of scenario of heavy, heavily writing to the database, you will be processing things in batches. So Corex is first and foremost oriented and optimized uh, to process batches of documents. Then, Lucene is building lots of in-memory structures. You know, with databases, uh, basically all databases are relying on either B plus three or some variants of it, uh, which is again, probably something like 40 years old idea. There's no magic. Basically with databases, you try to pre-compute as many things as you can in advance to form these inverted data structures, uh, to create indexes. And for older people, uh, for younger people, not all like us, us, indexes like a phone book. And if you don't know what phone book then is, then you're young. So basically what was done here, all these data structures that Lucene was creating in the memory, we are now putting them on the disk, which means that uh, if Lucene is taking eight gigabytes of RAM, Corex will take just one because the seven gigabits of RAM, which were allocated for inverted data structures and all these posting links and all the other data structures, this is all now on the disk. So this means that less memory is allocated and also cold queries. This would be a query uh, which you run after writing to a database. These cold queries were taken unproportionately long time with Lucene. Now they are very fast because everything is prepared on the disk waiting and you just need to act. And this is something that took, I think, two or three years to implement it. Now it's mature, now it's released. But it's interesting, you know, you can imagine developers, team that was developing Corex, they are working for two or three years solving really, really hard problems. Because you, you can imagine, you, you're building an engine that will be uh, powering sharded databases and maybe this will be 50 terabytes database, and you can imagine how testing something like this works. So we take stack overflow data set and load it. Actually, uh, a challenge for itself is finding 
data set large enough, realistic enough with a, a proper statistical distribution of, of data so you can run tests on that. Most people are not even given, given a thought. Something like for most projects, three, four, five gigabytes is large enough. We are speaking here about multi-terabyte data sets. And this means, for example, on one occasion, I was loading uh, a large data set. So I took Reddit, uh, export of users, and uh, Project Gutenberg. So it took me something like four to five days to load 1.2 terabytes of data to the database so I could run some benchmarks. So you can imagine just 24-7 loading uh, Parallelized code loading of this data into the database, you can imagine like four to five days how, how much data that is. Do you see a day where we can query our databases with a natural language? You know, like I like to talk to my database just like I talk to chat GPT. Certainly. Uh, I see no technical obstacles to it. Because when you think about it, look at something like Wolfram Alpha. Against something that's not so popular, but Wolfram Alpha started as a software called Mathematica, I think, uh, back in '90s, uh, symbolic compu computing, and now you now you have Wolfram Alpha website, which is loaded with lots of data, and then you can go and and, and say, uh, give me all, give me all uh, Super Bowls uh, uh, where. Uh, next Friday you have rain. You had rain, because in Google you can search for answers that someone already gave. But whole different areas computing these answers, so you can come up with questions that no one answered yet, and data is there, and Wolfram Alpha can process this in a symbolic manner and answer. When you put something like ChatGPT on top of that, you have, I think, that you have technical conditions to have natural language question, which will be translated to lower language languages and then executed. And when you think about it, we first introduced assembly programming language, then uh, higher programming languages to make, uh, and then you have compiler, which is actually translated be between higher programming languages and lower ones. So I see no obstacles in multi-step, multi-phase translation from the human language down to some lower forms and then executed on the data set. And uh, I don't know how that future will look like, but I'm eager to see it. Yeah, me too. I would. I, most of my work is done with relational databases, and so if I never had to write an actual SQL statement anymore, that'd be fine with me. <laughs> so this is, this is that why you're that, using an OR mapper, Sean? <laughs> yeah, pretty much, but. <laughs> What may happen is that uh, uh, Alexa will be revived when this happens. Uh, it, you know, usually you have this when you look at some very successful startups like, for example, Airbnb. Premise of the Airbnb is literally you're not at home. Uh, leave the keys to a complete stranger, enter your home and use it while, while you're not there. But it turns out that uh, uh, Airbnb was started at a very good point in time historically, and they succeeded because of that. Uh, if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, Uber before Uber was one German company which had problems, I think, fin financing, and they 
they did not succeed. Uh, so, for example, it could be that Alexa and similar uh, devices were released ahead of time and they missed this artificial intelligence or LLM revolution. So they could be back. Yeah, I think uh, I could be wrong, but I think VRBO was out before Airbnb. Mm. VRBO, Verbo is vacation rental by owner. So, yeah. Betamax was te technically superior and, and failed to VHS. So life's not fair always. HD DVD? <laughs> Anybody? <laughs> All right. So uh, um, what's the future of, of things like RavenDB? Well, on one hand, databases are becoming actual infrastructure. And you can see it, as I said, with all these initiatives which are building on top of the databases. But I think something that exists in RavenDB and people are not aware of is something very interesting. This is possibility for you as a developer to write C-sharp static method or JavaScript, piece of JavaScript code and inject it inside of the data. And this is interesting because this provides you with almost infinite uh, scalability. Uh, and extensibility, because you can have some complicated calculation, you can implement it in the programming language of your choice, and then you can uh, plug it in inside of the data. So now you have vector databases. Uh, I don't know if people are aware of how they are working, but for example, you have two products. And uh, you, you can see that uh, sunscreen and sunglasses are sold together, but how you can how you can collect all these products which are sold together? So you you establish something like 40, 50, 80 attributes or characteristics. You you grade products by each of these attributes, and then you essentially form a mathematical vector with with all these values and the attributes, and then you can compare. So I think. Uh, extensibility of database like RavenDB is very important because vector databases are now in and they are specialized too. But if you can provide extensibility points and let developers react quickly, swiftly, when something new is out, I think this is great because you are giving uh, some kind of security to people using your database that they will be able to quickly uh, come up. I've got one final question with regards to RavenDB about the stack. I mean, RavenDB is proud to be uh, using .NET uh, as the, the implementation uh, stack and framework of choice. So which which version are you on at the moment? Uh, we're currently on the version 7. So okay. the development, our, our CTO is actually a real developer. And I'm joking that I, I'm, I was writing business, you know, line of business applications, but this is really hardcore programming. Yeah, this yeah, is what most yeah. young people are dreaming of. So we are following .NET team. We are using version 7. After version 8 is out, we will, uh, of course, uh, first internally migrate, test it, see, see if everything is okay. But I could tell you that RavenDB is actually profiting from all these speedups in .NET mm -hmm. framework. And it even comes to the point that we did some optimizations which are now built in inside of uh, .NET frameworks. So we have to remove them because our optimizations on top of .NET 
framework optimizations can sometimes produce worse results. So we actually need to roll back some of the code to the simpler versions to be able to fully leverage uh, ahead of time compiling and now these uh, PGO and all these optimizations. So I think uh, the work that .NET team is doing is, is quite impressive. It's amazing. All right. So you always aim to use the latest uh, uh, released version of or stable version of uh, of .NET then, just because uh, I think since since .NET is, I mean, some people maybe disagree, but it's close to being feature complete, right? Performance is, I think, one of the key initiatives uh, of the last couple of releases, and you directly benefit from that. Correct. Correct. And also. So uh, one interesting thing, when you're building a database, uh, technically speaking, uh, all, you have operating system and then you have a database in the terms of, of how close you are to the hardware. So actually, when you, when you look a bit, uh, RavenDB is open source project and you, you can see pull request, everything is transparent, transparently done. And I'm usually saying, okay, it's not just like licensed open source, it's the spirit of the open source transparency, you know. So you will see that our team uh, from time to time discovers bugs in, in Windows, bugs in, in uh, Linux distribution, bugs in .NET framework. And it's quite interesting because, you know, when you're building business applications, when you have a bug, it's you. Here, you have whole stack and you, you're working close to the metal. Uh, uh, and then you, you, you can be hit by something like that. That's that's pretty cool. Awesome. So you're anticipating uh, .NET 8 being released in two weeks with once again um, nice performance gains. Yes. So uh, this is nice. Of course, when you when you think conceptually about the database, it's uh, people will assume it's written in some kind of low level code. Mm -hmm. Maybe C nowadays. Maybe Rust because I see Rust is next C. But uh, C sharp is completely, totally unexpected choice. But yeah. now you, but now you see for for small optimizations you go with small moves. For big optimizations you cannot go to to something like C and prop. For big optimizations you need to think about memory allocation, memory arena, uh, avoiding garbage collector. You know all these kinds of large scale optimizations. So you mentioned about putting code in the database and, you know, myself not being totally familiar with using NoSQL database, things like that. Would that be used for like creating something like a calculated field or things along those lines? Is that you, you can calculate the field even without that. But let me give you an example. Uh, one of the demos I did a couple of months ago. So what I did. As every good developer, I'm a bit lazy. So I found on GitHub someone who implemented uh, trained machine learning model for labeling images. So essentially, this person created a dockerized uh, uh, API. You send by, uh, actual, as a payload to the, the API, you send uh, uh, image, bytes, actual content of the image, and a trained model will return labels and probabilities. So it will say, okay, 70% that you have a ball on this picture, and 80% that you have uh, Volkswagen Beetle, et cetera, et cetera. So with such model, what I did, I took my database. I wrote small piece of code, which is uh, establishing HTTP connection with REST Sharp to this dockerized API. I plugged, the, plugged in this code into RavenDB. 
and then I got an index, and this index will take images because RavenDB can store images as attachments. So this index of mine takes images from the database, sends them to Dockerized API. Dockerized API responds by sending labels with probabilities. And then for everything which is more than 50%, I store that inside of the data. And after that, I can go and simply say from index, images by label, where label equals penguin and probability is greater than 0.9. And I will get all images where most probably I have a, uh, I have a penguin or whatever. And now when you think about it, real-life examples, imagine airport security. Imagine database which is storing all these, uh, you know, photos and, and the videos. And then imagine virtual helper to the person uh, uh, looking at security screen, uh, 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 firing up uh, a red light because something is suspicious on this uh, image. Pay attention or with the doctors analyzing X-ray or MRI scan. So for tasks like that, imagine now you have completely extensible database that can talk even you can go and if you want, you can hit over the network uh, AWS uh, something, some kind of newly released uh, service by AWS or Azure or, or GCP. Very cool. Very cool. So um, one last question is, you know, RavenDB, does it have different editions? You know, does different licensing apply? You know, it's like, is there a free edition? there's in it like if you're using it in like azure is that different than if you try to install it into an on-premise server you can install it yourself uh as a developer you have developer license just register with your email and you get license uh, there's community license which is suitable for commercial projects so let's say you're a small startup you you have your hobby project you can use community license to run it completely for free or you can go to RavenDB Cloud, which is database as a service. You have free OneNote cluster there. So again, you can spin up a cluster of OneNote and start working with, uh, with your database. What is interesting is that this is quite capable database. It runs on Raspberry Pi, even on AWS Graviton on ARM processors. So even small humble instance that you can get for free in RavenDB Cloud is able to support uh, Decent sized projects. Yeah. So, I mean, how, how big can a one node instance of, of RavenDB, you know, how big of a database could it be? Uh, on one node, you, you can, uh, in RavenDB, usually you go with a cluster of uh, three nodes. Uh, uh, we are using rough distributed consensus algorithms. So, odd uh, number of nodes is recommended because of the voting. So, uh, each of the nodes is holding complete replica of your database. So, you have high availability out of the box, something very similar to Kubernetes. So, if you're going with a single non sharded database, somewhere around 10 to 12 terabytes is some kind of natural limit. But as I already mentioned, uh, uh, most databases I can see in produ production are in gigabytes or dozens of gigabytes. It's very rare. Uh, I think less than 1% in the database in the wild are over one terabyte in size. So actually, with one small humble instance, you can go a long, long way. Probably you will reach some kind of uh, uh, position where you will be glad to go and actually purchase bigger instance 
and and you will be glad that you can uh, solve your problems with money. Yeah. So, but if if redundancy and uptime isn't so critical, then a one node instance could get you Absolutely. by until you get to that point. Yeah. Or or you can go with embedded uh, embedded uh, version where RavenDB is running in SQLite mode in the same uh, on the same machine with your application. Very cool. excellent. That was very very insightful. Um, thank you. Thank you very much. Are we yeah. ready for picks? Gentlemen? I think we're ready for picks. So, uh, Christian, why don't you go first? What's your pick? Uh, I have um, a software uh, package that uh, just came out with a new version. Um, it's uh, it's about uh, PDF uh, tooling. It's called PDF24, or the suite is called PDF24 at pdf24.org. I think uh, the the team that does that uh, resides in Berlin, uh, capital of Germany, but uh, don't worry, the software is in English as well. And so it's basically a collection of uh, tools for PDF, uh, like, you know, combining pages, extracting pages, uh, rotating pages, uh, watermarking pages, deleting pages, et cetera, et cetera. And it's all free. And I know there's kind of an abundance of online tools that does that. And yes, they do that uh, online as well, if you want to. And if you want to upload uh, your top secret PDF documents to random sites. Uh, but they also have this as uh, a, a Windows application, which you can download and install. And again, it's all free. And I mean, most of the time, I have just to combine different PDF pages. And there, there are the tools for that as well. So I would rely on that. But for all of the other extra options, I think that's uh, probably of all of the available PDF tools, um, probably the best one and actively maintained. So by all means, check it out. Okay. Mm -hmm. Dan, what's your pick? So I will pick something which is not related to the screen of the computer. Uh, since every developer I know is dreaming about uh, building his own product or company, I will pick up... Uh, uh, Shark Tank, which is a show where people are pitching their ideas, their business ideas for startups and, and for, for products and services to uh, investors. Uh, it's entertaining for me. And I also think uh, by watching it, you can uh, start thinking a bit uh, from the business perspective, what is important for running business, for succeeding, et cetera, et cetera. So I really, I'm really enjoying it. And I show yeah. actually the, the, the German version uh, is called, if you translate it, Lion's Den. So uh, depending on, I think, where you are, you have uh, different metaphors um, for, you know, mm. that, that area you enter about to be eaten alive. <laughs> yeah, I think I've watched probably every episode of the U.S. version of that since it started. So I've kind of got a little bit of an invention, you know, bug that's in me that likes it build things and create things or whatever and have some ideas that I want to want to productize whatever so I learn about it but will I ever happen I don't know maybe maybe not but I learn so um my pick this week is kind of a guilty pleasure it's a, a it's a show on Amazon not on Amazon yeah it is on Amazon so uh it's season 3 just started for a show called Upload it's kind of a a really corny comedy show um but i don't know i just it, it's interesting to me because it's about this guy that um got killed and right as he got killed 
they uploaded his basically his brain into this in virtual environment. And then, but the people that are in the virtual environment can interact with people that are in the, the real environment um, and things like that. So um, I watched the first two seasons. Season three has just started. So if you like corny comedies that deal about tech and virtual people, whatever, you know, give it a shot. Watch a couple episodes. If it's not for you, that's fine. But it works for me. Excellent. All Great right. show today again. Uh, thanks, Dayan, for coming and joining yep, and having. sharing uh, sharing your experiences. Yep. And uh, if our listeners want to catch, get in touch, what's the best way to to ask questions or reach out out to you? Uh, I follow Twitter pretty uh, much on a daily basis. So uh, I'm also present on the GitHub discussions uh, for RavenDB. So that would be probably the the best place. Yeah. I think uh, some people are trying to call it Zitter now, X I T T E R. Instead of saying X, formerly known as Twitter, they just say Zitter. It's kind of funny. So, but yeah, for our listeners that get in touch with the show, they can reach me. I am .NET superhero. I'm on Zitter. I am on Threads. Oh, don't say Zitter, please. Zitter.com <laughs> belongs to someone else. There's a oh. that countdown on that page. Is there so, an X-I-T-T-E-R? Please, it could be anything. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> X, formerly known as Twitter. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah. And then I'm also on Tribal. There's .NET Superhero. So any of those three. Get in touch. Let us know what you think. Give us some topics or tell us that you want to be a guest on the show. Be glad to hear it. Thanks, everybody. And I'll catch you on the next episode of Adventures in .NET.